0: It's not that I didn't learn a lot at my hedge fund that I had for four and a half years, but it was that I started that hedge fund for the wrong reasons.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it ladies and gentlemen i'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives to join me go to my worstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my weekly free become a better investor newsletter where i share how to reduce risk and create grow and protect your wealth fellow risk takers this is your worst podcast host andrew Stotz from a stotts academy and i'm here with featured guest paul craig paul are you ready to join the mission
0: Yes, Andrew, I am. After that introduction, I certainly am. I'm I'm
1: sold. (laughs) Well, the introduction is going to get even better because I'm going to talk about you. So let me introduce you to the audience. Paul is a global strategist focused on mega themes of climate, China, digitization and demographics. View from the Peak, Paul's consultancy, was formed in 2011 after an 18-year career in investment banking and as a macro hedge fund manager where he covers global institutions on these mega themes. His latest venture is Climate Transformed, a global community of climate investors, entrepreneurs, and corporate leaders who are practically implementing the $100 trillion investment required for us to achieve decarbonization and sustainability. My goodness, Paul, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. It's a pretty grandiose,
0: if it's a pretty arrogant of me, uh, Andrew, to think that I can actually challenge those things with words like $100 trillion and mega themes and the like. But, you know, I think that, you know, the way, the unique value, and I like the way you sort of phrase that, and I think it's important that everyone who does what I do, you know, trying to be a purveyor of information, has is able to clearly define what their unique value is. And I think that the one thing that that I've always tried to do successfully sometimes, not successfully others, is to take these very big picture views of the world and to boil them down into very simple logic but actionable bite-sized pieces, right? So if I was you know, thinking what in the general context of the worst things that I've done, which the list is long and illustrious, one of the, the big challenges that I face currently is convincing the trading community, whether that's you know, in the pub- public either public equity macro and the like, to actually give a shit about climate.
1: Mm. And
0: and the problem that we've had, the problem problem one of the problems that I have is that we are competing with a framework which is ESG. And I don't want to get into the the bashing of ESG because I think it does a, enough of the self-destruction itself to be able to get there. To convince people that ESG and impact and the way we're thinking it, about it now is not how we get to net zero, right? So I use this comment a lot that, of course, we would interview Greta Thunberg on climate transformed, right? So climate transform, what we do is we, our goal this year is 500 hours of interviews with the leadership charge with taking us to decarbonisation and sustainability. Mm-hmm. Of course, I would interview Greta Thunberg, right? But we interview a lot of lawyers. We interview a lot of Entrepreneurs, we interview the folks who are getting their their hands dirty in the implementation of a hundred trillion dollars of infrastructure that's required to required to get there. Right, the best example is the whole notion of those advocates to defund oil and gas. Right, you want to derail the climate agenda? We'll start by derailing the global economy first, because mm. that hundred trillion dollars needs to come from somewhere it's come from government it comes from public sector private sector no one body can do this alone this is not a this is not a capitalist endeavor this is not a socialist endeavor this is an everyone endeavor so the frustration i have one of my biggest frustrations now in taking those mega themes and putting them into bite sized packages is to convince a macro investor who lives on a 90 day rolling cycle that the trillions of dollars of infrastructure spending that we witness in the next 30 years, tens of trillions of dollars, is going to matter to dollar-yen treasuries, the stocks that they punt on a 90-day view, right? At the moment, I'm fighting a losing battle in that. They will care eventually. It's going to matter. It's the equivalent of a macro investor not caring about Google in 2002. (laughs) because at the end of the day, I think about it like this. This is the biggest investment narrative that we will ever deal with. You're not going to get $100 trillion spent on AI, right? You're not getting $100 trillion spent on the genome, right? But you will have a global coordinated government, corporate consumer effort to get us to net zero. We may not like what the consequences are. It is going to be a big hit to global profitability as we pay for carbon for the first time right but the reality is that the inflation reduction act the, the european green deal these sort of measures are just going to be amplified and amplified and amplified and that's going to be the reason why folks will eventually have to care
1: and if we if we were to go ahead let's say i don't know 50 years and that 100 trillion has been spent and we've achieved the goals that you've talked about where did that come from like what amount of that would have come from the government versus what amount would have come from, and let's say the government's getting taxes from you know, companies and individuals, but let's say also companies would have to suffer in some way on their bottom line if they have to start incorporating this additional cost. Is it 50-50 direct from companies? And of course the individual pays because they're buying the products and services from companies, but I'm just curious, like, how do you see that role?
0: There's a wonderful guy by the name of David Carlin who works for the UN who runs a group within the UN, the UN Environmental Program, runs all the financial initiatives program there. And the work that David does is that he looks at these macro themes saying we need to spend $25 trillion on electricity and we need to spend $15 trillion on agriculture and just biggest of big picture thought processes, right? The numbers that, that David comes up with are predominantly from the private sector. But the risk, it's, its I think, can I rephrase the question a little bit, right? right? It's not about where it comes from. It's how the money is levered. So one of the best programs that exists globally is actually here in the United States with the Department of Energy loan programs, right? Now, to take that a step further, where the DOE, for example, with these grant and loan programs that exist would do even better would be to take, instead of doing a a $400 million grant to a particular company, turn that into $4 billion of for 10% first loss loan guarantees, right, to allow Citibank to deploy $4 billion of debt, right, to 10 to $400 million ventures, mm. right? Those sort of things. So I think it's the number of $100 trillion is you've got to think about this. A lot of this money is going to be created, right, through... The magic of the banking system. But I think things like where this is going to work really efficiently is with things like loan guarantees, first loss provisioning, those sorts of things. And maybe I'll
1: I'll just explain explain that for the listeners. So for those people that may not get that, the idea is, is that maybe it's better for the private sector to assess the projects and distribute the funds and monitor the projects, but they may not want to do it because of the risks. And the costs, and therefore, by government coming in and providing some sort of guarantee for a portion of that, it incentivizes them to make those loans that they may not make if they weren't incentivized. Is that is that correct? And how?
0: Yeah, exa- exactly, right. So, so look, so think. Here's a good example. So, electric vehicles in the United States, right? Consumers in the, in the United States, in the aggregate, don't want it, don't want electric vehicles. They don't trust the range anxiety. The infrastructure is not there from a charging standpoint. You can make an argument that the co-op, well, certainly the fact that we haven't reached cost parity because an EV is just that much more expensive, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that we need to electrify mobility if we've got any chance of getting to net zero, right? And you know, Ford has announced a $10 billion EV program and the like. And the trouble is that Ford is building cars spending all its money in R&D on cars that people currently don't want to buy. Right. That sounds like a really shitty business model to me. Right. So what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to have more and more incentives coming through from government to bring the price down of EVs, right? Because there there ain't no net zero without electric mobility. Right. Mm So we have to get there. So if the technology is not keeping up, which battery range anxiety implies that currently it isn't, right? Cost is really, you know, cost is really inhibitive. The price of lithium you know in 2022 it was up 4x right so the, the cost of a lithium ion battery went up for the first time in 2022 which debunks any sorts of moore's law for batteries right you know how do you convince a consumer that doesn't want the product to buy the product because mm-hmm. it's in the social good well you, the way you do that is through incentives and the inflation reduction act is littered with that sort of that sort of thing but you know, I, I tell people all the time. I want every every American out there to retire the French socialist jokes, because Francois Mitterrand would have been proud of the public subsidies that are going on in the Inflation Reduction Act, which are essential to get this thing to get this thing moving.
1: One other question on that—it's kind of personal—and and that is, you know, Thailand's every year about this time we go through a a heavy level of pollution across the country, particularly in the north of thailand but also in bangkok it's very pretty severe and the major cause of that is crop burning and crop burning is illegal in thailand but yet there's just it just happens at large scale as well as across southeast asia
0: indonesia malaysia Malaysia, singapore gets covered in smoke about three times a year
1: yeah so let's forget about the cross country issues of how countries work together on that let's just look domestically and what would a country like Thailand need to do? I mean, I had some ideas, but I really don't know the solution to this and and it's, it's a challenge. But if if it could be solved, you know, I've seen, I've judged in a lot of case competitions in Thailand at universities and I can't tell you the number of them that have come up with the idea of driving around a diesel truck to go pick up waste from the farms and then take it somewhere and process it. But the transportation cost ends up being so high and so you just end up in this situation where the only option for a very poor farmer is to burn and the government just doesn't enforce that, the law on that. And I'm just curious if you had any thoughts or if you've seen cases where other countries have dealt with that.
0: Well, mate, they're not. The short answer, countries are not. And they. the only way you solve this is through cheap technology. It's through cheap hardware, right? You know, Whether that's, again, it's different. It's sustainable farming techniques are... There's billions of tens of billions of dollars being deployed at scale to make farming more sustainable, to make sure that sugarcane crops don't be have to be burnt and you know deforestation in the Amazon. We know all those stories, right? Yeah. The only solution is state-sponsored technology to give right. farmers the tools that they need to make sure they don't do this, right? Look, it's not like the rural Asian farmer, right? The rural Asian communities don't have access to mobile banking. They do. They have access to mobile banking, right? So there is, you know, the electrification of villages across all of Asia is going on at an unprecedented rate, and it's all because of cheap solar, right? So it's not like these places are utterly backward and immune from the benefits of, generally speaking, historically Western-produced technology, but increasingly so there's innovation going on all over the world and it's mm-hmm. a function again it's at this stage of the cycle you need to the the cost of this technology is inhibiting for those farmers right you need to have government subsidies to to ensure that they can be that they can be adopted right? yeah and i've and seen different... some
1: harvesting stuff for for instance maize that you know captures the waste and then bales it and then they can sell it one of the interesting things you know asia very well and when I first came to Thailand, I was like, oh, it's all these small-scale farmers. You know, they really need to industrialize farming. And then what I started to realize is that there's a reason why the government kind of didn't want to do that. And there's many different reasons, but ultimately it's about people kind of losing their control of the their little farms and their little lives. And then when we had the Asian crisis in 97, when we had the COVID situation, those small scale farms are like that's the retirement plan for you know a huge portion of the population many people just went back and were able to subsist but in order to get the technology out to the farms there's probably a consolidation that needs to happen and sometimes you have you feel like okay that just has to happen and on the other hand you feel like I hope it doesn't because it's kind of one of the things that's been a real safety net protecting people from really government, and you could even say maybe business.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think, look, I think it's a, and it's not just a, an emerging economy issue. I mean, you know, take a state in the US like West Virginia, which is going to be a, you know, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, is it's a, an economic revival or an economic upheaval, the transition away from coal to something more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Now, it's incredibly complicated. It's socially dislocating because a coal miner is not going to get a job as a software engineer at a new wind farm right it's just not going to happen and this whole notion of retraining requalifications and the like is really i think it's a, a white educated liberal dream that you can do that and practically it's not you know it doesn't matter and the and the issue is that you have situations like Donald Trump getting elected because you know you have communities around the place that are being disenfranchised because of you know, changes in, you know, this this incredible economic transition from one hundred and fifty years of fossil fuel dependence to something more. And I think that again, going back to the the practicality that we focus on at climate transform, you need to think about what is going to happen to those West Virginia communities. You need to think what's going to happen to those those Thai farming communities, right mm. who you know, they may have been families who have been on those plots of lands for multiple generations and to say to them that, they need to merge, they need to transition, they need to, look, you know, farming is a really crappy business. It's a single digit margin business, right? To go in and tell them that they, you know, in the US context, for example, that you need to go and buy a $200,000 John Deere environmentally friendly combine harvester. Well, no, right? You know, farmers don't need another app. Right. They need to find a way that they can take their very unstable business, which is made unstable by the weather. You can make an argument made even more unstable because of climate change and to give them a real economic reason for these transition to occur. Because, again, these farming communities have been wiped out because of weather for years to tell them that they need to spend thousands of dollars that they don't already have on equipment that they don't think they need. You've got to give them a real reason for that. And that's a global problem.
1: One last thing you mentioned, you know, I I grew up in Ohio, in Northeastern Ohio, which was originally oil refining with Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And then it moved into manufacturing cars, you know, Detroit and Cleveland. And I moved there in 1977 when I was young with my mom and dad. My father sold plastics for DuPont. He had a PhD in organic chemistry. He later went into recycling at the end of his career at DuPont. But one of the things that I, I left Ohio in 1986, and I went to California, got educated, and then I went to Thailand. I was going the exact direction. You know, I was heading to the jobs, the job creations. And the jobs, I didn't realize it, but when I went back to Ohio, it was hollowed out because of China. And, you know, you can't really fight a force of, you know, hundreds of millions of, you know, low-cost, eager people entering the workforce as what happened in China. But it's interesting how most Americans can't see, in particular, I would say, from the Democrat Party, that that there was this group of, you know, not particularly wealthy, you know, white citizens of America that lost their jobs and lost everything and drug addiction and all of that. And then all of a sudden, someone like Donald Trump saw that and he went for it. And it's a little bit like we saw in Thailand with Thaksin Shinawat, where he was one of the most successful prime ministers as far as getting voted, because he saw where the people were. And he was, he first, saw their he was suffering.
0: one of the first true populists.
1: Yeah, and he, he saw China where people. the people were and they were in the Northeast and mainly, and then a little bit in the North where he was originally from. And so he went after it and he brought them benefit, which just infuriated the Bangkok population who had never seen you know, money and benefits flowing out to the provinces to that level. And so, you know, I think that it's important to understand, you talked about it at the beginning about your ability to see the the big picture. That's why, you know, view from the peak is a great demonstration of that because looking at that big picture, and I think that you have, you know, hit upon a theme I'm sure that you've you've talked about a lot with your clients. So I want to get on to our big question, but for those people who want to learn more about, what you're doing as far as climate's maybe you can just talk about your podcast and what they get from it and yeah well
0: it's sort of i uh, people that we we don't have a po- well we have a podcast but i mean we our our whole thing is about the video content that we have on climatransform.com which is the i think 400 plus hours of interviews that we've got up there now you know ranging we did two interviews today on on voluntary carbon markets Andrew, we have a, i have what we call a profitless empire because we i went into this with a with no clear definable business model in mind apart from you know, having a platform to answer these practical questions. So look, use climate transformed as the tool that it is to inform yeah. to inform you on whether it's venture capital investment, private equity. But I think it's what I would say is I actively encourage public market investors to get on there because again on a 90 rolling three month basis, right, it may not, you know, it may not drive the two US two year note or may not drive the price of copper. But I can tell you with a lot of confidence that we're going to be in a 10 year deficit as this EV, this government backed EV adoption goes on around the world. And, you know, put it this way, if you want to short copper structurally, you do so at your peril, because this mega theme is going to drive, you know, structurally drive the price of copper over the next two, three, five years.
1: Fantastic. Well, ladies and gentlemen, just go to climatetransform.com and check it out and learn more. I think our discussion is interesting. I could go on for a long time on that. So, I enjoyed our discussion, but now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story, which may be a little bit of a different angle. Take it away. I six. think,
0: yeah, Andrew, I am going to take a little bit of a different angle because I don't think there's, there's no bad ideas. The idea side of things, that's the easy bit, right? There are just bad risks. There are just bad risk managers. And, you know, I think that if I was to, to say think about the, my worst idea was actually a change of job. And my worst trade or worst investment was leaving Caxton Associates in 2004 to start my own hedge fund. It's not that I didn't learn a lot at my hedge fund that I had for four and a half years, but it was that I started that hedge fund for the wrong reasons. Back then, it was an easy environment to raise capital. Right so when someone dangles a couple of hundred million dollars in front of you you take if you're a someone who with the value of hindsight clearly had a big ego at the time who got was seduced by that wanting to have your name on the door you know, you left the comforts the wrong word but the familiarity the the hedge fund university that was Caxton Associates or more capital or Soros as they were back then because you learned so much. I mean, I had in the space of five years had the pleasure of working for Lewis Bacon and Bruce Covenant. Right. And in 2004, I could not say I I, I was learning so, so much at the time. And and a lot of it by osmosis and not actually appreciating what I was actually learning. Look, following a guy like Bruce, who was just a legend in this industry, right? Mm. And long story short, Andrew, my father passed away in November 2004 and I got married around the same time. And I remember being at my dad, just a couple of days after my dad's funeral at my mum's place. And I was, I'd was i flown from the US, flown from the US and was jet lagged. So I was up at like four in the morning, just sort of sitting in the backyard. And I had an idea to start a fund, right? And it was one of those sort of moments where I just pardon my language just said sort of said fuck it I'm going to do this and it's such it was such the wrong timing it was such the wrong reason and it was just wrong on on a myriad of levels and I think that there was such a degree of emotion that went on with this decision that it was not done with the clarity of sitting down saying what am I giving up on and if I look back at the the people who worked at Caxton, who one of the great you know hedge funds have this reputation of turning over people consistently, like just they churn people. That wasn't Caxton. that's that wasn't what it was. And I worked for this fabulous gentleman by the name of Roy Lennox, who was just one of the nicest human beings on the planet. There was some great, just some great macro thinkers at the firm. And you know I think that there was a, a guy called by the name of John Macon, who was the chief economist who, who unfortunately passed about three or four years ago, who was the the head of the the American Enterprise Institute, just great people. So I, I launched this business, and it was a good time to launch. I was seated by a fabulous, a fabulous individual named Dwight Anderson, who was running a fund called Osprey, and I remain friends with Dwight to this day. And a lot of the Osprey crew were are still great friends. And but that was no substitute for having that training ground, which was watching a guy like bruce do what he does each day and i am often utterly stunned when i talk to other traders about the stupidity that comes out of a lot of traders mouths in terms of their their theories on you know the fed being rigged and all this sort of stuff and they've made yeah multiples of the money that i will ever see and it's why it's not the ideas that matter it's the risk and bruce was that incredible hybrid of just this incredible intellect, right? But at the end of the day, he was a grassroots gut-feel trader that had no emotion or sentiment to anything he did. And it was just a fabulous combination. And Lewis, I think Lewis Bacon is is the same because I'm sure that there's a slew of people who've come on and given their worst trades. And if you boil down what their trade, what went wrong with those trades... Is they allowed themselves to get wedded to these positions that their egos took over, that they knew more than the marketplace. Right. That's Paul Tudor Jones doesn't do that. Lewis Bacon doesn't do that. Bruce Kovner doesn't do that. Right. And I think that if there's obviously there's, you know, if you run a $10 billion macro hedge fund and you're worth billions of dollars, yes, you have a bit of a big ego. Right. There's not many big macro managers out there that don't. But I think there's a difference between having a big ego. Outside of trading and humility within the trading realm. And I think that the, you know, me starting my own hedge fund proved that I did not have that humility. And, and I how think, did
1: that, how did it end up with the hedge fund? And then, you know, how did you go from that to moving on?
0: So, towards the start of 2008, I went through the double whammy of separating from my wife and realizing that I just couldn't do this anymore that realizing that I'd made a mistake, that I wasn't emotionally prepared, mature enough to do what I was doing. I had plenty of I had plenty of support. I had a great business partner named Cindy Ponder, who remains a dear friend to this day. I work with a guy named Ashley Cox, who is my best friend to this day. And the one saving grace through all of this is that our friendship survived what was a very tumultuous period. And for me, that's the one saving grace in all of that. But the decision, like when I when I separated from my wife, I realized you can't you can't run a fund and go through a divorce at the same time. I think it's you know, it's just emotionally emotionally impossible. I think it's a if you view as I do that you're a steward of other people's money and you are a fiduciary, then I think you're you've got to pick one or the other, and that's the reason why why I decided to take two years off and then eventually start View from the Peak in uh, you know early two thousand and
1: eleven. So how would you summarize the lessons that you learned from that?
0: but i think it's a, it's all it's all about humility that things are for every good idea out there there is a million ways for it to go wrong that you can't think about you know i look at my i look at my climate my climate business right now that we're now trying to find ways to monetize mm. and the thoughts that i had about how i would monetize this business are different than what i originally thought because i thought that everyone would care I I literally thought all I'd need to do is to walk into every investment firm in the world and go, it's a $100 trillion narrative. That's why you have to care.
1: Get on the train.
0: Get on the train. And they don't. And it's much much more nuanced than that. It's more nuanced than just focusing on people who care about the climate and the like, and, and being this is, whether it's catalytic investment or if it's just anything around socially responsible. It is a much more nuanced discussion. I think it is a... I'm as bullish I am in terms of the business of climate as I have ever been because still, Andrew, it's $100 trillion. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot of money, right? So I think that there's still that that has to be taken into account. You know, I describe it this way. it's it's, As I said before, it's the equivalent of 2002 not caring about Google. Investment firms that don't have climate analysts are like investment firms in 2002 that didn't have a tech analyst. Mm. Yep. Right, who didn't know about mobile, who didn't know about the cloud. Right, He didn't know about electrification of vehicles, mm-hmm. he didn't know about renewable energy, right? And things can go, and things can ebb and flow in cycles, but these are such defining times- defining technologies for the global economy. I mean, the global economy is going to wean itself off oil and gas in the next forty years. Oil will be yeah. a secondary a secondary product in the next forty years.
1: So right. Maybe I'll summarize a couple of things I take away from your story that I think are, you know, really interesting to think about for the listener. There was, well, who is it? Was it Richard Branson that said, screw it, let's do it. You said, you know, F it, I'm going to do this. And I think the first lesson I take away is that when you get that feeling of like that wind of confidence that comes to you, where you're like, let's do it. Take a step back. Walk so around the block. Walk, don't
0: walk, I should. The greatest regret: don't, don't, not walking around the block.
1: Yeah, take a walk. <laughs> so enjoy that moment of this, you know, powerful excitement. But then pause. That's the first thing. Second thing is that when most people don't realize it, and you've described it pretty well in your description, is that when you go from working in a professional environment with professionals and impressive people to starting your own fun, you're alone. You're going to find yourself in a little office, maybe one or two other people, or maybe a shared office or whatever. But ultimately, you go from this environment of support and all kinds of exchange and, and all kinds of resources to just being, you know, on your own. Andrew, can I just describe it slightly differently?
0: Yes, that is one scenario. The second scenario, and the probably more dangerous scenario. Is that you go from being surrounded by people who are more experienced than you by being surrounded by people that are more junior than you? Mm. Right. So if you are going to start any form of business, be that a hedge fund, asset management firm, climate consultancy, whatever it is, you need to surround yourself with people who are more experienced than you are. Yeah. Right. Having a bunch of 28-year-old analysts who are never going to push back at you is really dangerous.
1: And maybe um, the point is, is that you shouldn't really start that until you've got some experience in a, in a structured place leading people a bit. So then when you go there, you're a little bit more comfortable with it, I guess.
0: No one teaches you how to manage people. Managing people is horrible. I'm,
1: I'm terrible at it. <laughs> I'm horrible at it. The challenge terrible. of a lifetime.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I am a people person. Like, I'm known, you know, I freely admit that I'm a people person. Horrible at managing people.
1: Yeah. Horrible. So let's go back in time. Based on what you learned from that story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? We may have already identified it. Take a walk.
0: let walk around the block. But I think, but again, it it depends on the duration of the investment, right? So if you're thinking about this as I want to buy some dollar yen today, I think it's going up. Have a think about what your process is. Where are you getting in? Where are you getting out? What is Treat everything with the same agnostic clinical process, right? There's no there are good ideas and bad ideas. there are. But you need to treat them once they're executed with the same clinical lens because once they're executed, they're you know you're at the whims of the marketplace. Yeah. And depending on the time frame you're of holding this it will, I mean you could just get stopped out for random reasons, but you have to, if you get stopped out, you get stopped out and you start and you start again. Starting businesses, I think, is a is a different kettle of fish. The grass isn't always greener. Right. Right. Starting a business is really hard. I've started multiple businesses now. Most have done well, one fails, but it's, you know, it's it's tough. It's a tough thing to do. And I think the, there has to be a plan. There has to be an exit strategy. So starting a business, there has to be a stop. If it doesn't work for X years, if you spend X amount of capital, you know, you've got to treat this in some ways like a trade, right? Because just as running a trade too long can lead to you getting wiping your capital out, the last thing you want to do if you start a business is to to take it too far and suddenly realize that, oh, I didn't contribute to my kid's college fund this month
1: because mm, no.
0: right? I had to plug a hole here and I had to do that. And also it's a function of being respectful of the people that you that you hire, who have put their faith in you. Firing people is the worst thing any business owner can do, right? Because, you know, you're disrupting people's lives. So, And if you're disrupting people's lives because you haven't covered your bases and you've made rookie errors, well, that has consequences for for their families as well. So I think the one takeaway is just let's use the expression walk around the block, but walk around the block and think about what are the scenarios where this can go wrong? And you know what? If you think that way, you will leave money on the table every day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But you may not face systemic risk. And that's I think right. that that's, that's the takeaway. Great.
1: So what's a resource you'd recommend for our listeners?
0: A resource you'd recommend? com? I think that that's something which is, again, it's we're something we're pretty proud of in terms of it's all <laughs> free, so just please jump on there. A resource that I would recommend for for people. I'm going through a phase now, Andrew, where I am listening to every sort of full meditation podcast. There's a great podcast called the The Doctor's Pharmacy with an F-A-R-M talking about food and, and the like. If I could recommend resources, I would use less resources. Mm. Right we all know at our age, I'm I'm 52, but I knew this a long time ago, what I need to do to live a long, healthy and successful life, right? You know, I know I can't eat pretzels before bed and pizza three times a week. And you know what, my alcohol consumption has collapsed because you know what, I can't wake up hungover again. And I know meditation is good for me. But I don't do it. I don't do it every day. And, you know, I've got a Peloton in my bedroom that I didn't ride this morning and I didn't ride yesterday and I didn't ride the day before. Right. So I know what I need to do. Right. So I think that I think you can get, particularly with the podcasting world, right, that you can get utter paralysis by new ideas to implement, right, about spirituality, about business, mm-hmm. about health, about all sorts of stuff. I'd use less resources. Right okay you're smart if you're a smart person you know what to do right you don't need to read another john kabat zen book about mindfulness right because you know what i think meditation is a wonderful thing it's great for you do i do it once a week for 10 to 15 minutes yes am i a yogi no i know i should do it every day but i don't and i think it's actually a lot more calming when you appreciate you know what I did have some pretzels before I went to bed a couple of days ago. <laughs> you know, and, and so I just, and I just do it. Every day, and maybe just maybe the de-stress of not finding ways to de-stress right, is actually just let things be as they are.
1: All right. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: Meditate every day. Go vegan. <laughs> no, 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 no. Peloton. No, no. But I have well work work goals is to we're rolling out climate transformed into into live events. So we're working on rolling out 30 in-person events in nine countries over the next 15 months, which is getting that done successfully is the professional goal. I do have a goal about trying to do 50 push-ups by the end of the year. And Andrew, I'm not the I'm not the people who know me will laugh at this right now. I literally started off in the first week of January doing two push-ups. And what I've done is every week I've added one push-up. And I'm now. I did 22 push-ups this morning. So Insect, literally, I'm adding one, per, one per day. So every day this week, I've got to do, I've got to do 16 push-ups this week. And I did 22 yesterday. So every day, once set a push-up. I will get to 50 push-ups by Christmas.
1: That's exciting. In fact, I've fingers crossed. Watched I watched fingers a video crossing. on someone doing that. A lady. That was pretty impressive, and it made me think about. It. So that's a that's a good potential challenge for all of us.
0: And the the only thing that will happen, Andrew, is there will be no video. Yes, <laughs> I
1: promise you. Yeah. And you're smart enough to know not to take the challenge of doubling it every time. So at least you just add. No, more. I have
0: a I have a sixteen year old who's already much fitter than I am. So I have that yeah. I have that
1: motivation as well. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Paul, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever. Thank you very much. Yeah. And do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: No, I just, I, made, I, like, like I, love, I love this concept. I think it's a great way to get people to, to seriously think about the, the benefits you get from failing, the benefits of failing. And I think that's an important way to think about it.
1: We appreciate it. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.